0: Thanks for coming back. Kathy and I were recently on a trip. I would throw this up on the screen, but I've got this up there, so I'm not going to do it. But I'll show you just the picture generally here. Uh, and then I'll come down your aisle here to show you more about it. Because you see, here we are. We get off the plane in Athens. And when we get off the plane in Athens, this is the first picture that I took. Because I couldn't get away from you people. Above our heads, above the door, there's the word exodus. Exodus, because it's the exit. Uh, Exodus, because that's where it comes, exodus. Exodus is a Greek word, and 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 if you remember from what we've talked about, um, this word appears when Moses and Elijah meet on the mountaintop with Jesus. And they talk about his departure. And the word departure is exodus. So the exodus is integrated into the crucifixion in the sense of it was for the way out of our bondage to sin and that's that's the whole connection there so uh i just thought that was crazy to show you <laughs> okay so <clears throat> and we are we are finishing up here and this is a good thing to be finishing up and i and i was thinking this week this is going to be kind of like We're in chapters 13 and 14, so you can turn there, chapter 13, verse 17. But, you know, Pharaoh, when uh, he was asked with the plague of frogs, when do you want me to get rid of them? And he said, uh, tomorrow. So it was one more night with the frogs. So there's an analogy here. Today is one more morning with Sparky. So so you, we're going we're gonna to take care of that and, and get, take care of all those things today. So let's pray and ask God to bless us on this day and uh, to teach us from his word. Father, I want to thank you for your goodness and your grace to all of us. We thank you for the exodus that you provided for us, the way out. I am the way, the truth, and the life, the way out of our bondage, the way out of our selfishness, from our sin, from our rebellion against God, is through the cross of Jesus Christ. He rescued us and he brought us through to his kingdom. And so, Father, I pray that you will help us to live accordingly. We were in misery. We were without hope and without God in this world. But you delivered us. And now we are to live lives of gratitude to our God, to our King. And we pray it in his name. Amen. So, did you pick up the outline of Exodus I prayed there? What's the first point? Misery. Misery Misery is the first point. You've got to be in misery. You've got to realize that you're a sinner, that you have a need. And they did, and they cried out to God. And then what did God do when they cried out? He delivered them. And because God has delivered us, what is our debt that we owe? Gratitude. Gratitude. Nothing else. Nothing else, just our gratitude. So, look at chapter um, 13, verse 17 here. I'll let you take this look of the uh, Exodus, this last session. It's trapped between Pharaoh and the deep Red Sea. And uh, here's the passage we're going to study. And we know about the Red Sea, I'm sure. Now, well, let me tell you, we'll get some maps. I'll show you some things today. I've got a lot to cover. But the, the Red Sea here, in the Hebrew scripture, it is, it is not the Red Sea. In the Hebrew scripture, it's Yom Suf. And Yom Suf is translated from the Hebrew as the Reed Sea. Now there's a big debate. Therefore, where did this take place? Did it take place in the Red Sea or the Reed Sea? And what is the Reed Sea? All right, so there's all this kind of, and and I'll deal a little bit with it. It's it's a uh, it is viable and true, um, though there's a the debate that they went through the Red Sea, and that is part of of all of that. And I don't want to get in that now because I'll, I'll, let me, I'll do it when we get into this. Verse 17, look at this, what it says. <clears throat> when Pharaoh let the people go. Ah, oh, finally. What a nice guy. He lets the people go. But you know what? We know the backstory, don't we? Having studied those first 12 chapters, we know how obstinate and ugly and mean and threatening and even killing children was to him. But now God's people are free at last. And and that's the bottom line of this. So uh, from this point forward in the journey, it should be smooth sailing, right? I mean, they're going to be free. They're, they're, they're going to walk out. That's it. Every Life is going to be easy and good, right? Isn't that what your life was? After you trusted Christ, everything's gone smoothly? Okay, well, either you're not awake or... Um, you're not listening so it's uh, from this point on it's it's uh, on their way to Sinai a camping trip in the wilderness with a family and descendants of Abraham this is so exciting to do only this isn't your average size camping trip I don't know if you've ever been on a camping trip camping trips can be a lot of fun you can define fun any way you want to and something like that but uh you know, when this family had first come, you come back to Exodus chapter 1, when the family had just come in, uh, they they were just a handful. The family picture included 70 people. You could get them in the frame. You can't do that now. It's more than 70 people. In fact, there's more than 2 or 3 million people who are gathered together. It's because they were fruitful they increased greatly, they multiplied, they grew exceedingly strong, and the the earth was filled with them. That's one, two, three, four, five words in one verse alone in Exodus 1-7. Magnificent growth. And Pharaoh said, no, we're going to allow that. So he began to oppress them, put pressures on them. But the more, I'm quoting verse 13 of chapter 1, but the more the Israelites were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. More, more, more. They just kept growing. So, um, he finally said, "Well, we're going to throw the children into the Nile. Let the Nile, let the waters swallow them up, so to speak. And there's a little connection I'm going to make there a little bit later on. He throws them into the Nile. But, It says still, verse 20, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. So what does a family portrait look like now? You can't get it all in one frame. You know, you've got, like I said, two to three million people. And, and, And think of it. The scripture puts it this way. There were 600 men underfoot. No, no, on foot. I'm sorry about that. They were on foot, not underfoot. Who were uh, so we do all the calculating with this, and what what we can give is estimates. People have figured this out that if they stood fifty abreast, side by side, then they would form a column that would stretch for forty miles. And walking at an average pace of two point five miles an hour, it would take them something like sixteen hours to pass any given point for the whole column to pass it. That's, that's a lot of people. Now, I think they were probably wider than 50 people apart, so it cuts down things greatly, but it gives you a, a sense of the size. So if, if they're going to, to, to do all of this, it's going to take a miracle, right? But first things first. Here we are at the Red Sea, and here's what we're going to look at today. Four points. And as we've seen throughout Exodus, it's all about God and all about His saving purposes, and And caring for his people, so first, we're going to see God leading his people, then God protecting his people, then God's saving his people, and God encouraging his people. So those are the four things we're going to work our way through. So let's come to the first of these, God leading his people. chapter thirteen verse seventeen through fourteen four. So during the time in Egypt, God's people had lived in a region known as Goshen. Uh, This is in the Nile Nile Delta. I'll show you that in a few moments. Uh, It was apparently from this area that the Exodus actually began. If you want a fuller summary, there is a great summary Moses provides stage by stage in Numbers chapter 33. 49 verses, he gives a full listing of where they traveled, where they started out from, where they ended up, and so on, and set camp. So here they are, ready to leave. 600,000 plus one leave the city of Ramesses, or Avarice, uh, that we would know today, in Goshen, bound for the Promised Land. Anybody notice anything about that statement I just made that's uh, unusual? Plus one. Plus one. All right, who's the plus one? Ah, uh, We've got to go back to something. And you may want to uh, look up here and see. That plus one is they took a mummy with them. They took a sarcophagus. And this is so important. We look back to the book of Genesis, some of the last words. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you. This is centuries before. God will visit you and bring you out of the land uh, to the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you. Look at it twice now, he said. It. God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin, a sarcophagus, in Egypt. Now, this event is so important that it's even mentioned in the New Testament a couple of times. This was a significant thing. Book of Acts, Stephen in giving a speech to the elders of Israel, through which he became a martyr. And then also in Hebrews 11. Look at Hebrews eleven twenty-two here at the bottom. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith. Joseph had faith that God would do what he had told Abraham even centuries before him that God would give them a land. Now, Joseph's sarcophagus was a reminding, reminder that this moment was not just a matter of escaping from the oppression and the bondage that they had suffered for those 430 years. It was, rather, a fulfillment of the promises of God to bring His people out of bondage and into this place of blessing and inheritance for his people. And uh, so Genesis 25, uh, chapter 50, verse 25, is now connected with Exodus 13, 13, 19. So it was a reminder of the Lord of the covenant who keeps his promises, who keeps his word. And that promise would then be fulfilled in the book of Joshua, chapter 24, verse 32, when Joseph was finally buried. Now, having said all of that, let's take a quick look at some things here. All right, here, here's just a general picture. I'm going to send you some, show you something more specific. But right here, Ramesses, this is where they settled in Goshen. By the way, notice this, this is a satellite photo, a uh, l- little bit tinkered with the, with the colors maybe. But uh, and this, by the way, I put a picture here because I wanted you to see who who their host had been for uh, these past few years, Tutmos third or Tutmosis. You'll see it in some places. So here's where the people were living in the Nile River Delta, and so they're going to be going over here to Succoth and to Etham, and they're going to be passing here Baal Zephon, Migdol, Piha, Hiroth, here at the Red Sea. This is the Bitter Lakes region. Uh, I mentioned earlier about there being various ideas here. Let me take you to a bigger, better map. Uh, hopefully you can see this or look at one in the back that you have of your Bibles. Here's Ramesses up here. All right, there are several ways you can go across the Sinai Peninsula. We're going to read about it. They could go the way of the Philistines here. This is, this is a short journey of approximately 11 days if you wanted to travel uh, and get over there quickly. So you think, all right, well, this, this is the way they're probably going to go, right? There's Canaan right there. Here's the, They are here. 11 days of, of easy travel they can get there. There was another way here. This is the way of Shur. See that there? And it goes over to Kadesh Barnea. Ah, we know about that in the Bible. So they could have gone there too. Uh, then there was the Hajj route. H-A-J-J, the Hajj route. And uh, this is the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, question mark. Actually, there are some scholars who believe that Israel, when they left, they actually went all the way over here to, to the Gulf of Aqaba in their first journey, traveling by day and night, just continuous journey, because there is a verse here that says that they could travel day and night. Now, I, I'm not one who necessarily embraces that. It is a bizarre thing, but it's an interesting thing because when it says they had to turn back, you mean we've got to go back <laughs> to where we came? We'll we'll talk about that later. But this is this is the road. But here is the traditional route that we normally see going down to to, to Mount Sinai and then coming back up this way. That's the traditional route. That's the, and this is what Most people hold to. The big question is, where did they cross? Did they cross? Some people think they crossed up here. Some people think they crossed in a canal going through here. Then others in the Bitter Lakes region. Lake Timsa is right here. And then this is the Bitter Lakes region. I will show you those regions in pictures here in just a moment. But for our purposes, following the traditional map, uh, which takes in the various cities, uh, is, is the best way to look at this. Now, I will say this also before getting into this. We we cannot locate all of these cities. They're buried in the sands. So we have not seen all of them, but we can pick up some here and there. And where we can, I'm going to show you just a couple. <clears throat> here, this is Ramesses, uh, Katana Kantir, uh, and the tell. Whenever you see the word tell, that means the mound. This is where they're doing archaeological digs. If you ever see the word tell something, so the Tell Ed-Dab'a. This is where they were living uh, in this this particular region. As you can see, it is a plain, and it is it is a a, a very um, good place for growth of things. Here is Succoth, as best we can tell from ruins that are there. Um, Mascuta, and so this is, this is the region. I've got several pictures, but I'm, not, I'm only going to show you one. And then the area of the bitter Great Bitter Lake. Now, I'm showing you this because often they talk about the Sea of Reeds, and so this is probably the Great Bitter Lakes region. Um, <clears throat> the, the, uh, and, and we might think, well, they, they just went through marshes, and some people think they just went through marshes. Well, as you can see, the bitter lakes that, that is sometimes the option is not exactly a marsh. Uh these are tankers. Okay? This is these are high seas as well. So it's it's not necessarily just a marshy area and it was easy for God to do and uh, we try to explain it from a natural standpoint. This is what liberal archaeologists and theologians often think, but I see no problem going back to the fact it can be in either this sea or the Red Sea, but they're going through a sea. And and in fact, in Scripture, the Red Sea or the Reed Sea is mentioned in passages, um, uh, other passages referring to the actual Red Sea. If I were, to, let me go back up for just a minute. The the Red Sea is actually down here, right? This is actually the Red Sea, the Reed Sea. And then coming up are two prongs, the Gulf of Suez and the Gulf of Aqaba. So all of this together is the Red Sea. So that just helps you. That's why one guy thinks it's maybe over here they actually went and then had to go all the way back to Egypt, and that was just put them out terribly. All right, let's go back down. All right, have you got somewhat of orientation there, and use your map in the back of the Bible. We're not going to need a map much more here, but let me get to the right spot. Okay, here we go. So, journeying southeast, they're they leaving Egypt. They journey to the southeast, and they pass through Succoth on their way to Etham, and uh, That brought them to the very edge of the wilderness, as we could see. You saw where the seas were, and so they were right at the point of where the wilderness was. And verse 18 has already mentioned that the people were being led um, by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And their guide on this trek is Moses, of course. He's 80 years old, but he spent 40 years in the wilderness. He should know, you know, this whole desert area very well. But the truth is they were not being led by Moses, were they? They were being led by another. And this is where verse 21 here, the second bullet is. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night a pillar of fire to give them light. So leading them and giving them light, that they might travel by day and by night. So there were times they were traveling day and night, apparently. Further, and and when I when I think about this, that what God provided for them, uh, I've got GPS. Okay, boy, is that a help? In the old days, Kathy sat over next to me in the co pilot seat, and she had maps spread all over the place. To find. Now we've got GPS. Now, Israel had GPS, and and pardon the pun. God's providential supervision. So he is there to take care of them through this wilderness. The cloud, the fire is important. So important, in fact, that centuries later, even after the exile, the people of Israel, that's a thousand years later. Remember this and hallow this, Nehemiah 9:12. So how could anything go wrong? Uh, there, there's not even a voice saying, recalculating, you know. Every turn is a right turn with God leading you, right? Are we on the same page with that? Well, hold on a minute, because there appears to be a change in travel plans. We are recalculating when you come to verses 1 and 2 in chapter 14. It's in the third bullet here. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people to turn back. In other words, they had gotten to a point where they're ready to go right in the desert, going down to Sinai. and God says, wait a minute, I want you to turn back. Turn back? And so he says, turn back, encamp in front of Pi-hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, and in front of Baal-zephon, you shall encamp, facing it by the sea. Now, that doesn't make sense, Lord. Oh, we're, we're trying to leave here. And now we've got to the edge of the desert. We're almost out of his hands, out of his territory, and you want us to go back? And and did we hear you correctly? Did you say Migdal? What is Migdal? In fact, if you look on a map, some maps, you'll find there's a bunch of Migdals because Migdal means tower or watchtower. These were fortifications or... Uh, places where Pharaoh had border patrols. So God says, I want you to go down there near that border patrol, and I want you to camp there. Hmm. Between Migdal and the sea? Wait a minute. If we're there between one of Pharaoh's camps and the sea, um, doesn't that put us kind of in a trap? What's this all about? Well, God tells us what it's all about, what he was planning to do here. He has two reasons for changing course and putting them in that position. First, uh, for Pharaoh to say to the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land and the wilderness has shut them in. <laughs> they're hopelessly lost. Those people are clueless. They really need a leader like me. You know, they, they don't know where they're going and what's, what's up. Second, this would cause Pharaoh to rethink that release of the Israelites and chase them down. What? God wants Pharaoh to come and chase them down after he has released them and where they have the vision of freedom in their sight? Well, look at verse 4. "'And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord.'" Pharaoh still wasn't getting it. The Egyptians weren't getting it. Even after 10 plagues, Pharaoh is proud. He regrets his decision. He's going to go pursue them. But God's glory will be acknowledged in all of this. So, if he's coming after them, they need protection. So this next section, 5 through 18 of chapter 14, is God protecting his people. The camp has now moved as you see in the first bullet uh, at God's command and true to form Pharaoh has hardened his heart one thing he's questioned his decision about releasing the slaves and he's ordered his chariots to make ready for the chase in verses 5 and 6. After all think of the economic impact of losing free slave labor. This could ruin our country. We've got to make some laws here and changes here that will cause the economy to thrive because that's what's most important of all. So Pharaoh prepares 600 of his best chariots and they roll out and along with a uh, very uh, uh, formidable accompaniment of horsemen, and they bring Moses back, or they're going to try to bring Moses back to Egypt, verse 7. And I'll I'll throw this out because it may be a question that comes in your mind. So where did they get all the horses and everything since the livestock had been killed? That's a question we've also asked before. You go back to Exodus 9, 6, and you will find there was a group of people who feared and yet saved their livestock because they put it inside. This is where the livestock's coming from, from those who had believed. So Pharaoh's going to take and usurp uh, many of these things. Those uh, who've questioned Egypt's military force, you'll find that there are some um, theologians of the liberal persuasion that will say, you know, this, this is really all kind of a mythic, story and because Egypt did not even have chariots they didn't even have all these other things they didn't do their research because back in the 1700s BC the hyksos had invaded Egypt and brought their powerful uh chariots with them their new technology in warfare and so for now this is now 1446 we've got two and a half centuries basically in which these chariots have been used in Egypt, and they are known in, the, uh, in, in some of the annals of Egyptian histories as having exceptional horsemen. So some people just didn't do their homework on that. But uh, apparently it didn't take uh, Pharaoh long to catch up to his prey, as we can imagine. And in verse 9, this king catches up with the lost tribes of Israel, just where he wanted them trapped between himself and the deep Red Sea, as we mentioned earlier. Now, I don't know who the first person was, caught a glimpse of Pharaoh and his men. But when Pharaoh drew near, look at this verse here on, in the bullet's last bullet. Drew, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out, Out to the Lord. Look at that last line. They cried out to the Lord. That's exactly what they should have done, right? Here they are. They see the problem. All right, Lord, it's in your hands. We're crying out to you. That's not what happens. When it says cried out to the Lord, uh, there's really more to this. The fear that they experience is real and it's understandable. Any of us would would have done the same thing. We'd have cried out. But this crying out is really an outcry. The word in the Hebrew means to shriek. It's the sound of thunder. It's bellowing. It's making an outcry. And the outcry is against God and against God's servant. Now, how do I know that? Well, for one thing, the word cry out here is not a word for prayer. It's a word of panic, and it's used that way in Scripture, when people just panic and they start crying out. For another, the people turn on their leader, and that's a common reaction when people are afraid. Verses 11 and 12, which you see here in the bullets, they they said to Moses, listen listen to this from, from your own perspective and how you have felt. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? These people are angry. They're upset. They see themselves dying here. There's sarcasm and explosions of of, of emotions. Graves in Egypt, the place is crawling with them like pyramids. Egypt was obsessed with death. Things have taken a sudden and frightening turn here, and the people are questioning God and Moses, God's servant. Listen to this statement carefully. I don't think I put it on the screen here. It seems that the presence of Pharaoh grips them more tightly than the presence and the promises of God. And isn't that true in most of us when we confront problems? The problems grip us more than the promises. So the fact is here that um, this trip didn't begin with everybody on board. Look at verse 12. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone. That we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Don't you hate the words, I told you so. I told you so. This is exactly what they're saying right here. And we discover that Moses did not have everybody on board for this trip you go back to Exodus chapter 5 verse 21 and you see some of that there but here they say we told you leave us alone we didn't want to leave you forced us to go it was a bad idea in fact it stinks that's the word used in Exodus 5:21 you made us stink in the nostrils of Pharaoh so man this whole thing stinks right now do you, can you somehow feel the emotion of these people who now feel betrayed, how? Why did we listen to this crazy man from the desert, who's eighty years old? Well, what's even more tragic? Look at this second bullet: was their willingness to remain as slaves in Egypt even though it had been less than pleasant for them? If I, if I remember correctly. Hadn't they cried out in their misery in Egypt as well? But now, how revealing it is for this statement in verse 12. It would have been better for them to be servants of Pharaoh than to go to serve God. I guess it comes down to the simple fact of how do you define the good life? What's the good life? Did they really believe that life as a slave in Egypt was as good as it gets? Is it really as good as it gets? Is living in sin as good as it gets? Living in bondage? But you see, they had become used to it. It was comfortable. They knew what to expect. We don't know what we're going to get into in this wilderness. And look already, here comes Pharaoh. He's going to kill us or take us captive again. And it won't be good. It won't be pretty. In our own bondage to sins, we sometimes think that, that living to serve ourselves, that we get comfortable in living and serving ourselves rather than serving God fully as we should. So, I ask you a question. If you had been Moses and in his sandals, how would you have responded? Well, <clears throat> I have been a pastor for, for more than 40 years. I've been in the wilderness for more than 40 years, okay, in pastoral ministry. So I know what it's like to lead people. And I thought about, having heard that, what would I have said to these people? How would I have responded? So, so here's my take. I think I would have said something like this. After they said, you know, they, they didn't like all, it. fine, go back to Pharaoh, He's been so nice to you, and you were so well off these past past 430 years. And by the way, enjoy your brick making. I might have said something like that as a smart aleck pastor. But that wouldn't have been very pastoral, would it? But I do think that Moses' next response may have a bit of an edge to it, too. It's wonderful, but I think it may have an edge. Look here in verse 13. He says, Fear not, stand firm, see, just watch, the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. (laughs) I think there's a little bit of that there. I I love that. That, That's a great speech, by the way. That's that's a great speech for, for cinematography. Put on the screen. But let's try to read between the lines of verse 14 because uh, did Moses really believe what he was saying himself? And and after I've studied this as carefully as I could and thought about this, my answer is yes and no. I think there's troubles because as we look here, looking at verses 14 15, look at verse 15, the very next verse in the story. The Lord said to Moses Why do you cry to me? Okay, I'm missing something here because I didn't see a place where he was crying out to God. Did you? But God said it, so it must have happened. But the you, the you here in that verse is singular. God asked Moses, not the people, why he, Moses, is crying out to the Lord. So, okay. I heard what he said to the people in verse 14, but what exactly did he say to God? What did he ask God? And apparently it was something like, okay, God, what now? What do we do now? Now, it could be he was just speaking, God was speaking to Moses in the sense he was the the leader of the people and represented all the people, and uh, it's like you're crying out to me too. There's something there that appears that Moses was also wondering what is going to happen. Because here they are, an unconquerable army on one side of them, the impassable sea on the other. This is real life. Something's got to give. Something's got to happen. And we get up, caught up in that in our real lives, my real life. I mean, we we have a problem on one side, a problem on the other side, just as bad, and and we're between that rock and a hard place. No way out. Our back's against the wall. Lord, what am I supposed to do? You ever been in one of those places in your life? If you haven't been, you will be because most of us who've lived uh, any measure of years can tell you there are times when it appears there's no way out of this. I can't see an answer. What do I do about these bills, or about my marriage, or about my job, or about this or that decision, about this health issue, about a wayward child, and on and on it goes. But the Lord said to Moses, "Why do you cry to me? I had stopped him. I pushed a pause button." But it says, "Tell the people to go forward." In verse fifteen, well, Lord, all right, go forward. Could you just look out the window of heaven for a minute and see where we are? You want wants to go forward. You do realize there's Pharaoh and his armies here, and there's the Red Sea here. And he wants to go forward. Hmm. If we go forward, we're going to drown. Now, in fairness, God doesn't hit the pause button here, the conversation with Moses leaving him in the dark, like I did just now as I'm teaching this. But we do that with God, too. We we often hit the pause button on a conversation with God because we don't want to hear really what he's saying. We've got our own ideas, and we know what needs to happen. But nevertheless, here, God has more to say, and let's see what that is. He says, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it that the people may go through the sea on dry ground, verse 16. And mark that word dry, because that's kind of one of the repetitions here. It's not so much the sea parted, even though that's big, isn't it? What what was really amazing is it was dry. Yesterday, um, I went out late in the afternoon. We, We were keeping grandkids and stuff, but Kathy going outside and she was pulling some weeds or something out there, and I went out there to, to help her after she'd done all the work. And, and I'm thinking, there's a lot of leaves out here. I need to blow, blow some of these leaves off. And it had rained yesterday very hard. I got out there, and I was tramping in mud all over the place. You know, Now, the rain had stopped. It had been sunny, but it was still muddy and it was i was a mess when i came back in my shoes were at least here you would think what dry ground how is that going to be possible well you know if if something like that where the sea divides and there's dry ground beneath the wet sea where it had been if something like that would really happen how could you not give god glory And the Egyptians would have to see and know that there is a God named Yahweh who can do miracles. Um, I'd like to meet the first guy who took the first step, wouldn't you? Wouldn't that be interesting? Ask him what it was like. I'd love to hear his story. But whoever it was did what God said, making the journey through the sea simply one step at a time. And that's often God's plan for our lives, just one step at a time. A step of faith, a step of obedience. These are the steps that God will guide and bless in our lives. But those chariots, think about this now. They, if they start moving, these chariots move faster than a couple of million people can move. So obviously, Pharaoh's armies are, are won't Pharaoh's armies catch up to them? That's a good question. But our concern shouldn't be about Pharaoh's armies. It should be about what we're doing. Are we taking the right steps? Do we go forward? Do we stretch out? Do we divide? And do we see the salvation of the Lord? Well, speaking of salvation, third point here, 19 to 29, is God saving his people. Moses prepared to do as God said. He's not fearing. He's standing firm. He tells him to... Watch to see the salvation. You don't have to do anything. Just watch. And God takes action. Verse 19. Look at the first part. Then the angel of God. Let me stop right there. Because this is interesting. I, I work this through in your mind. Who or what is leading them? The pillar of cloud or someone else along with the cloud? Is the cloud so identified with the person that... Because when I'm reading this here, it appears that the text and the context, that there is a presence other than the pillar of cloud and fire. Many, many scholars believe that there's both a pillar of a cloud and a pillar of fire separately, the two columns there. I, I don't know. The text doesn't really tell us that. But is there another presence Let me take you down the road here to Exodus 23 and verses 20 and 21. Second bullet. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Long story short here. There is apparently, to my reading of the text, a theophany. There is the presence of the one who has His name upon Him, that is our Savior Jesus Christ. And if you go on down uh, to Exodus thirty-three, fourteen, there in an incident with a uh, golden calf and so on, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest later. Looking back over the history of Israel, Isaiah records something, God's words. He begins to speak, and then God speaks. Listen to Isaiah, and it's right here in front of you. I will recount, and and, and listen to this as we read this, how God cared for his people, how much he loved his people. Pick up on this as I read and as you watch. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. Looking back, and there is the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. So, as we read this next section then, then the angel of God, it seems to me in reading the text that there is a presence of God here. And look at the word, listen and look at the words carefully. The angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved before them and stood behind them. Now, My simple reading of the text tells me that there's more than just a cloud going along. You know, pay your money, take your choice on that. And what happened? That person and that cloud came between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. So, what an incredible moment. I just, i am bask in this moment. Try to put yourself in the crowd of Israel when you're standing there and you're crying out against God and Moses and you're you're you see the cloud and stuff. But that's not affecting you until the cloud starts to move. First part of that verse, the cloud starts to move and went behind him. Whoa, whoa, wait, 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 wait. Where's that cloud going? God, that's that your pre- where, where is that going? We don't want to lose your presence. They don't lose God's presence. God's promised to never leave us or forsake us. God God has never, ever abandoned his people. He won't abandon you. So we know at this point that God is doing something, and whatever God does, it's always for his glory and for our good. For his glory, for our good. God is doing something good here. They don't know what it is yet. And in, in life, that is true too. God is always doing something in your life, and it's always for His glory and for your good. If we would somehow view everything that happens in our lives, oh, this, is, this has got to be for God's glory. Even the bad things take on a new meaning. The twists, the turns, the problems, the pressures, it's all a part of God's travel itinerary for us here in this wilderness of the world. So, we never need fear. So, we, we stand firm. We stand firm and we watch the salvation of our God. So, what happened? Second bullet. And there was a cloud and the darkness. The cloud moves behind them and between and creates darkness. And, and it lit up the night without coming near. To the other, all night. One side, darkness. One side, light. The God who had been their guide is uh, now taking his place behind them to be their guard and protect them from every threat. So, under the protection, the protective cover of the dark cloud, immobilizing the Egyptians now because they can't see where to go. You know, uh, and the light of God's presence shining for Israel. Here's how things began to happen and the people start moving forward by faith. Hebrews eleven twenty nine, We see something happens within the tribe of Israel here. It says, by faith, the people cross the Red Sea on dry land. By faith. But on the other hand i do wonder in my very dark mind as god brought darkness here upon the egyptians did any of them think about the plague that they had just experienced a few days before called darkness I mean, you get that eerie feeling you know this uh, deja vu <laughs> all over again you know this darkness This was not good because it led, darkness led to death in the final plague. Hmm. So, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. That's twice in the verse already. The waters being a wall to them on the right hand and to the left. Wow. What an incredible aquarium. Can you imagine here on either side? You've got walls of water, and you're walking down between it there's light they can see it's not dark on their side i wonder if they saw fish swimming back and forth i wonder i mean my mind just this goes fertile in a lot of ways uh, on this particular one and and so they're walking through that sea god is protecting them god carved a way of deliverance through that threatening sea to save them from the terror of that threatening army. And and by the way, that <clears throat> that width here, it was probably three or four miles to get everybody through uh, in, in a good time. If it was uh, three to four miles wide, they could cross in about five to six hours. And this is probably what happened there. Now, can you imagine, what, what would have been the impression, if you had been there, if you had been one of them, would you have remembered that? In ages to come. Well, here here is how it was remembered by a later generation who then, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, wrote this. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. What that means is, the plagues did not hit them in the same way. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love. How he was rescuing them. But... They rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. This was a rebellion when they cried out against God. It's called a rebellion right here. Yet, this is our God. Yet he saved them for his name's sake. What does that mean? He kept his promise. I said I would do this for my name's sake. That he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea. It became dry. And if that's not enough. And he led them through the deep as through a desert. Those sands were not muddy. They were not wet. It was like desert sand. You could have picked it up and watched it pour out. Just like a desert. I think it's just incredible what he does here. So. Picture it in your mind, walls of water on either side, dry ground beneath your feet, floodlight shining in the night, darkness holding the Egyptian chariots at bay. An incredible moment, what a great God in His deliverance. This is the first time they've personally witnessed the power of God in this way. So, then the cloud that held them captive seemed, the Egyptians captive, seemed to dissipate, seemed to recede a bit. And cautiously, I can imagine, the Egyptians began to move forward, knowing that they still had Israel in sight. They could still see people out there. They got them pinned against the sea. No way out. Verse 24 tells us, though, uh, that we've arrived at the morning watch, somewhere between 2 a.m. and dawn, probably the latter, and perhaps there's some light, they could at least look down and know that they were on the right track because they could see footsteps in the desert sand. He says, we have them, and we'll have them in our grasp in no time. But somewhere along the way, it probably was a bright recruit who began to realize things are not as they seem. He looks around, and he says, uh, you know, I think, and this might sound crazy, but I think we're in the middle of the Red Sea. <laughs> what? There's no way that could happen. Look down, it's dry ground. There's no sign of water anywhere. But the full light of dawn revealed a different situation to them. As that dawn came, the sun was rising. I think the Egyptians must have been glad to see the light of day because the light of day, they worship the sun. Ra. Ra is rising on us. He's shining on us. Ah, this is our day of victory. That's the weirdness of this moment. And if you look here at the verse, the Lord uh, at the at and in the morning, the Lord in a pillar of fire and also a cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptians' forces into a panic, clogging or binding their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. I want you to note about the panic. What caused the panic in this moment? Well, God caused the panic, and He used several factors. Number one was the imminent danger. Suddenly, they realized how exposed they were to a very real danger. There's a wall of water to either side of them. Secondly, there's some dramatic storms. I don't have it on here, but mark this down. If you're taking notes, Psalm 77 Verses 17 and 18, listen to what was going on as they're going through this particular uh, a sea on dry ground. It says, the clouds poured out water. There's water on either side, and now the clouds start pouring out water as well. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. What are his arrows? Lightning is striking everywhere. The clash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Uh, You know, Cecil B. DeMille, you know, he tried to make it as good as he could. Not as good as this. Not as good as the real thing. But can you imagine being an Egyptian, finding yourself, the walls of water, suddenly the rain clouds burst, lightning striking all around you. Things are getting bad. So that it's a dramatic storm that's there. Third thing was clogged wheels. Chariot wheels got clogged down perhaps in the seaweed that was in the bottom. Now water starts pouring in upon them. Their technological advantage is gone, and note the word heavily at the end of the verse. That is the very same word that's been used about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Oh, you, you like hardness? I'm, I'm going to give you something heavy here. And then finally, and this is the most important, verse 25, a mightier hand than the hand of Pharaoh. A mightier hand. The Lord fights for them. Verse 25 says, And the Egyptians said, Let us flee before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. These guys were slow learners, but they were no dummies. They knew they had to get out of there. And with those words came the realization God's judgment came down. And the walls of water came crashing upon those men. Verses 26 and 27. And within moments all the host of Pharaoh that followed them into the sea, not one of them remained I need to get to the next verse to give you that. Not one of them remained. second bullet. This is the fate of all who would resist and reject God. There is a judgment day coming. But God is encouraging his people. And just give me a couple more minutes here. We're at our closing time. But this is important for us to see. God encouraging his people as thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw. Notice all these saws. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. God saved them. Second bullet. Means to open wide and free, to deliver, to rescue. The first time this word is used with God as the subject, Israel as the object of this. Israel is later described, I love this, in Deuteronomy 33 22. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you? You know, we're used to our pastors saying, Who is like our God? But here, who is like you? A people saved by the Lord. That's who we are. There's our description. A people saved by the Lord, not by ourselves. The shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. There is not just a sigh of relief at this point. There is fear. Fear. A different kind of fear. It's the same word used as the Egyptians had in 1410. But now they fear the Lord and they believe, they trust in Him and in His servant. What an encouragement. David would later, you know, look at this third bullet. I'm going to end here. David would refer to this in his prayer of gratitude in 2 Samuel seven twenty three, And who is like your people, O Israel? Who is like your people? And we are blessed. The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods, and established for yourself, your people Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. This was the moment of their salvation. Here is their redemption. And this is what God has done for us as his people. At the cross of Calvary, we became his people. He paid the debt of our sins. He released us from the bondage of our sins. What a glorious God we have. Who is like our God? Who is like his people? Saved by the Lord. So as you go for the next service, you praise God. You may not have gone through the Red Sea, but you've been through awful things. And the Lord went through the cross to deliver you from your sin. Father, thank you for this time we've had together. Thank you for your people being so patient and uh, studying all these many weeks. Um, May you get the glory and the praise for all that you are doing for us in this life here and now. It's in the name of Jesus the Savior we pray. Amen. God bless you.